Welcome to an original series, the podcast celebrating our favorite TV shows behind the paywall. I'm Patch, one of your co-hosts, and with me celebrating the world of long-form storytelling is the guy who I would love to hang out in an abandoned mall with and hopefully not have infected. Attacking me, my best friend, Aaron. Thank you so much for not leaving me behind. I would never leave you behind. (laughs) (laughs) I think we probably have hung out in what is close to an abandoned mall at one point in our lives. University was... Kind of mm, on the cusp yeah. there. I don't know if it's even is still in existence. No, is it? no, it's not actually. Okay. Yeah, of the <laughs> for for those of you who've never lived in the uh, Little Rock area of Arkansas, at one point there were two malls that were within walking distance next of each door, other. Yeah. literally a block. Yeah, yeah. So I never appreciated the. <laughs> The similarities and differences of having two malls uh, that close to each other. Like if I wanted to go to Mr. Bulky to get my candy versus going to Dippin' Dots. Park Plaza is still around, as it should be, because it was the less... It was by far the glitzier and yeah. newer and glamour. <laughs> University was like, yeah. this thing was from the 50s yeah. or whenever. Yeah. You know? <laughs> it felt like... Park Plaza would have the Lululemons, whereas University would probably have like Baby Gap. And that's probably the extent of their like, <laughs> like amazingness. I always know that a mall has class when it has a Dillard's in it because Dillard's was always the store that I would go in and it would smell great because of all the leather and the fresh, you know, clothing fabrics and stuff. And then I would look at an amazing shirt from, uh, you know, like us polo and be like, Oh, I'm not paying $95 for that. And I still won't even as an adult. I just, it's, it just boggles my mind that somebody would be willing to pay that off the rack, but we had our mall and you know, Ellie has hers now at this point. We are in episode seven entitled Left Behind, and I know that when I saw this title, I was really excited because if you don't know, if you haven't played the game, we'll go ahead and give you a little refresher. This is the uh, DLC. This is the content that when the game came out, I didn't play it when it originally came out. I came out you know, several years afterwards, you know, courtesy of my, my friend here, and I remember it being part of the, the purchase, but if you look on the menu it appears and it says only play after you've played the main story. And I agree. I think your first time through, you're locked in with Joel and Ellie. On subsequent replays, though, it feels really weird to play it that way. Like there is a specific point that is a very much like, oh, okay, this feels like a stopping point in the main game. Now we go back to essentially an Ellie origin story. And this is exactly what we got is is an origin story, not just for Ellie, but of a lot of things, Aaron, that were very much like thrown in throughout all the episodes. And I remember a few. I think you have a better memory when it comes to this. Did anything from the episode left behind kind of pay itself off really well from little hints earlier in the show for you? There's a lot. And I have some of them written down. I figured we would go through it as we go through the episode, of course. Yeah. I will say this about the video game. I do the same thing. Now I play it when it comes up chronologically, which is the same place that it shows up in the TV show adaptation. The big difference for you viewers of the show only who did not play the video game is that in the video game version of this, it's actually intercut. So Ellie goes and has her flashback sequences that we're going to talk about, which is the bulk of or basically all of this episode of TV. But simul- like simultaneously, you're coming back and you're having to play as Ellie going through a mall, which is the whole point of this being a tie-in and why it is triggering this memory in her. Because she's now in a mall with Joel and she is on the hunt to try and find first aid. And the TV show we cut the the hunt to find it out. And during the hunt, she has to fight solo for the first time against a bunch of infected and a bunch of soldiers. And it's honestly one of the hardest parts of the entire game, in my opinion. Like I even knocked it down to easy mode for a second at one point because it's just, it's tough. It is very, very tough. You really appreciate Joel at this point in the video game. Cause right. you're like, dude, please come back. <laughs> yeah. I'm not going to make it without you. But so that doesn't happen here, which again, that's happened all TV show long. We've, trim down combat sequences and I understand why but just just for some backstory that's what happens in the game but the important part of the storytelling is happening 
with Ellie's flashbacks in the mall, which is what we get to experience here. And like you, man, I was so giddy that we got this. I was questioning whether or not they were going to do a full episode on it and not, you know, trim it down into just a piece of an episode. I, I just very, very happy with it. Yeah, I was too. And it does capture the spirit of what the video game is trying to get at, which we'll get into as the episode breakdown happens. But let's start out where we're at. This is uh, in an abandoned neighborhood. It's still winter. Shimmer, I think, is the horse, uh, is in the garage, <laughs> freezing, <laughs> shaking off the, the snow. And uh, we see Ellie taking care of Joel. At that point, Joel's like, leave, go. You know where to go. And Ellie's like really mad at him. Like, I'm not doing this. This is what I thought was really fantastic about this episode. It was a great bookend because there's a moment in her flashback that sort of ties some of this together. She's leaving and she grabs the doorknob. And we don't know at this point in the episode, is she leaving him? Is she going to get medicine? What's happening? And I think from my viewing this time, I think that's what we're meant to feel because that's what she's feeling. What is she supposed to do? Because that's when it cuts to the flashback and we get that whole the start of that whole backstory. But did you pick up on the apprehension from like her in terms of like, she doesn't know what she's going to do. Or do you feel like she had that in her head the whole time? What what she ended up doing, which was going to get medicine for him. That's a fantastic observation. Frankly, I think it's probably because I'd played the video game three times, four times, five times before I ever watched the TV show. Never even thought about it because I knew what she was going to do. So it didn't pop in my head as a question. I do think it is a pretty strong emotional oof of a moment right off the bat with Joel clearly not in good shape and telling her go north to Tommy like that. That's touching. Like he's like, this is the only person left that I can even think of. And, and it shows how much he cares about her. He's like, I need you to get to Tommy so that you can be safe because he really doesn't want her to die. It's not just about completing the mission anymore. It's just about her safety. And so that is a strong moment and you can see, I don't know if you noticed it because it's a pretty dark scene, but there's a tear that comes down and yeah. it really got to me this time around. I was just like, man. And I think to your point, like whether she knows what she's going to go do or not, Joel doesn't know. Joel has no idea what's happening when she walks out that door. And for him, he is just going to lay there wondering because it's not like she says, don't worry, I got you. I'll be back. Like she just goes after he told her to leave and he's crying and it's thinking of it from his perspective is pretty harrowing, I think, because you're I just can't imagine being in that place and wondering, am I just going to lay here until I suddenly croak? Is she gone? Did she go? Yeah, I, I think for me, it's another one of those moments that defines their relationship. We've had several DCRs over the course of these last six or seven episodes where they're making small choices within themselves in order to benefit the other person. And I thought that this was a really fantastic way to push us into her flashback by giving us a little bit of uncertainty. What's the choice she's going to make? Because remember, we have just come off her and Joel having this conversation where he's like, you're not my daughter. And I still think there's some sting from that. Like, I feel like even though you know he's willing to take her, I think there's still a little bit of mistrust, but I think throughout the course of the the university sequence, him getting shot and her at the end of that episode saying, I can't do this without you. I had a little bit more reassurance in my head that she was going to make, quote, the right choice. Like she was going to do what she could to save him. But I like the fact that there's a little bit of that uncertainty in that moment. And that's what kicks us over into her flashback. And here's a little bit of a deviation, unless I'm missing something from backstory. I didn't know that None of this happened in the game with the gym and running and <laughs> listening to to great uh, music on her Sony Walkman. What a great little product placement there. But yeah, so she's running and she's doing laps. She's getting kind of taking some crap from an older girl who she ends up just like thwacking right in the face. I was almost hoping for a throat punch myself. But it definitely uh, reminds us that Ellie's not a wimp. She is her own person. And that puts her, well, before we get there, there's a moment where the girl mentions her and she says it very deliberately. Oh, her, or she's not here. And I'm like, oh, okay, okay, we're, we're setting up Riley. That's cool. I like that. But then she goes to the uh, the principal's office, the federal, I don't know what, the, it's a, det- it, it it's feels a, like the principal's office. Yeah, yes. I guess you could say that. His name's Captain Wong, and uh, Kwong. I Kwong. fix it in the Kwong? notes. It's Kwong. It's Kwong. It's, it's Kwong. You're Kwong. right. Kwong. Kwong. Yes. Sorry, 
My bad, Captain. So you got shitter duty. <laughs> <laughs> Dang You're going to the sewers now to replace Riley. Give me your gun, right? <laughs> That's yeah. Captain Kwong asks Ellie what's up, and he essentially gives her two paths. He says, uh, "Keep doing what you're doing and be the follower, or shape up and get on that path to be a leader." I thought there was a really interesting thing happening here because for a minute, Captain Kwong kind of made me feel a little bit more sympathetic about Vedra. Not much, but a little bit more. The propaganda was sort of hitting me in him saying, you know, we keep things in order because in the hands of the people, things could get crazy. He's telling you like, we are keeping the city together. And I know, but you're the ones that's actually tearing the city apart. You are tearing me apart, Lisa! You know, and and it's just like ridiculous. But I did feel that in that moment. And I think Ellie kind of felt that a little bit. He's giving her a path to get out and to be something. I think he's appealing to her sense of maybe not duty, but just like strength. And at the same time, he's sort of slightly convincing the audience watching this scene play out that maybe Fedra's not so bad. They are. I can see how she would sort of somewhat buy into that. I could too. I thought of that a lot when I was watching it and how he does make that comment. He says, I care because no matter what anyone else thinks, we're the only ones holding things together out there. I was rewatching JFK. This is a crazy tangent, but I was rewatching JFK the other night. That movie is famously controversial because Oliver Stone doesn't make a biopic about John F. Kennedy, makes a three hour movie that is essentially perpetuating this conspiracy theory that JFK was murdered by all these different groups collaborating. That's what the movie is about. And my big takeaway from it this time was it's not about whether or not that's how it went down. The problem is that that's believable and that's what we believe. And that's sort of how I felt about this this time is Captain Kwong believes, I hate this phrase, Patrick, but this is his truth. (laughs) This is his reality is that they are holding things together. Then you have the Fireflies. Their reality is that they feel that they're holding things together, essentially, right? You have these different groups that feel it's, it's no different than any other aspect of life. You have Republicans versus Democrats. You have the different way in which people feel life should be governed and people should be able to exist. This is what he thinks it should be. And so if you're in that perspective, it's a pretty organized system that is not all that bad, honestly. Like they give them a chance. That speech he gives her, I agree. I was kind of buying it. I was like, you know, he's got a point. I love the way he tells her, dude. When he's like, or... You could be the officer. And, and I love it's like a pair of keys. And at the end, she's like, uh, the keys. But he's like, or you could be an officer. And then you get to tell the Bethany's of the world where to shove it, you know? And I just love that he framed it against this exact instance that she had of a fight with this one particular person. And I came out of it thinking the same thing. I was like, yeah, of course I'm going to take the officer. But the reality is, what are we doing to people on the outside of our bubble? that don't fit in our perfect little plan. That's where Ellie begins to question things, of course, thankfully, which I would hope that most of us would do, but so many of us, Patrick, would have just been fine being in Federal. Like yeah. we would have been, it would have been the easy way. Right. And the comfortable way. You're, yeah, and I think that that Riley, when we meet her later and, and the things that she expresses to Ellie sort of reinforce that opposite end, that it's not what you think it is. It's not nefarious necessarily, but they're going to say what they need to say to get you up to a point where you can buy in and then they'll slap you with like bathroom detail that kind of stuff and it makes a lot of sense i mean and we could we could say well yeah because fedra is bad well to extend your point a person's truth a person's like perspective if reinforced and consistently moving in that direction they're going to be the quote bad guys because it's going to be what their rules are and nobody else's they're not they may say they care they care about their own at that point it's really more of a tribal kind of thing. If you're not Fedra, you're not with the good crew. The Fireflies could say the same thing. Kathleen's crew could say the exact same thing. And we see such a great contrast, or at least similarities in contrasting groups between at least Fedra and the Fireflies. Because we can't say for sure that Fedra is great because we've seen that perspective and you know how they're always trying to shoot and you know making people do bad things or things they don't want to do. But really the Fireflies aren't that great either. And there, there's a couple of great sequences of dialogue between Riley and Ellie that we'll, that we'll get to that sort of reinforce that, that who are the bad guys? 
That's another great part about the story is we don't have an answer to that question. And sometimes we're forced to choose sides or maybe not. So then you have a guy like Tommy, and especially in last week's episode where you have Tommy who represents coming out of something that is inherently on the surface, a good thing, the good guys, but he realized this isn't for me either. There's something better. And that's a life in Jackson living in the old West, apparently, (laughs) but you know, it's, it maximizes this story's beauty because it's so nuanced and it's, it's allowing us to really sort of ask that question all throughout the show. Who's good. Who's not, who's right. Who's wrong. And even if we come out of this going, I don't know, we can at least say, at least at this point, we're saying, but I don't care because it's really worth wrestling with because it's enjoyable to wrestle with. So I think it's, you know, that's, that's where the magic of, of this property really is, uh, is coming from. So after that, it's rainy night. It's rainy night in the dorms. Um, she's reading the, uh, the, the uh, Savage Starlight comic and looks across the room at an empty bunk. And I really, really like the establishing shots here, Aaron, of like posters on the wall of, I think, Mortal Kombat posters there. There's a a tape of Aha's like greatest hits. I don't think they had one, but maybe. (laughs) So just all these things that show even in this post-apocalyptic world, Ellie is a consumer of content. She's a consumer of pop culture and that she's not defined by being an 80s kid or whatever. She's, She's a kid and she's been informed by all these things that even of the things that she doesn't know, this is the other thing I like about her is that she's informed by all this stuff. And yet she's still naive to all these other things like football and Victoria's secret, (laughs) just these things that we take for granted because we know about them. It's so cool to see her discovery, but also see where she sort of anchored herself in, in particular with this music. And I thought that was kind of cool. I agree. The Easter eggs in this room are really cool uh, and they pay off. I've talked about details this entire podcast series, and this is what I love. The MK2 poster is going to pay off later in this episode. We've already gotten a nudge about MK2 earlier in one of our previous episodes as well, when they came upon a dead cabinet. Etta James, there is a poster of Etta James. There is an Etta James song that plays at one point during their time in the mall that's coming up later in this also this ties into what we're talking about with Fedra. Like this is a very normal dorm type of experience or even a military dorm. Like what I went to and experienced in the Navy, not boot camp per se, but after that, when I was in my, you know, specialization schools and we could actually decorate a little bit, you know, this is kind of what a dorm room would look like if, whether it's in one of those or college or wherever. And so it's just a very natural sort of existence. And it does, frame her as a kid and it just keeps her in that place of of childish nature and that is what this episode is a lot about is her experiencing things for the very first time which are how she becomes the person that she is once she's on this journey with joel yeah yeah that's a that's a great way to put it so she falls asleep later that night she's awakened i think at like 120 or something <laughs> it's freaking terrible i i I'm on her side. Yeah. This is insane. Yeah. This is insane. What kind of joke? No one does this. What kind of, who thinks this is going to be funny? Riley does. Riley. Riley's wrong. <laughs> What's great is Riley doesn't even apologize for it. She's like, I thought it'd be funny because you thought it'd be funny. And she's like, it's not. I'm like, okay. It's like, there's nothing like, I'm sorry. But no, Riley's unapologetic about this. And by the way, knowing what is on her person, that gun could have gone off. Okay. <laughs> like, that's my point. Yes. She would have been stabbed. That gun would have gone off and then end of show. Okay. Cause that's not, that's not okay, but you're absolutely right. Yeah. So she jumps in, Ellie wakes up. She's been gone for like three weeks. Apparently Ellie's like, where have you been? And then she shows that she's a firefly. Uh, Ellie doesn't believe her at first, but then she shows her, I think it's the, it's the t- not tattoo, but it's the badge or something or the gun. And then it's the gun. Yeah. <laughs> so that's where Ellie freaks out. Riley calms her down by asking her to come out for a few hours for what she says is going to be the best night of her life. And uh, had I not played the game, I would have been like, what is this? <laughs> Apparently, Ellie had her standards really low. She's like, we can't go to the park because it's kind of occupied by Fedra. And Riley's like, we're not going to the park. <laughs> so they start on their way. Conveniently, the rain has stopped. So they're not, <laughs> they're not in the rain anymore. And along the way, they're having some really good conversation about, you know, why'd you do this? They talk about Ellie's fight. She's got that black guy. And Riley reminds her, you know, you can't fight everyone. 
they go into this building. This is one of those great little nods to the video game. Riley breaks out her flashlight, courtesy of the fireflies. And then Ellie breaks out her flashlight, which starts to flicker. And this is such a great game mechanic in The Last of Us and The Last of Us Part 2 is if you have your flashlight on too long and it starts to flicker, you actually like tap your controller as if you're tapping the flashlight. It's such a great haptic for the game. But I thought that was a really cool little little throwback to the uh, to the video game. It was really kind of fun. Literally wrote the same thing down. <laughs> so <laughs> I, I did. I wrote down, loved seeing Ellie have to hit her flashlight against her hand to get it back on. It's again, you're so right. It's one of those things that people from the games are like, I had to do that. It is just a very quick thing in the show that's represented well and speaks to the fact that it's kind of a joke because in the video game, your opponents don't have to do this. And that's what Riley says. Riley's like, yeah, obviously Firefly flashlights are better or something to that effect, you know, because hers don't go off. Yeah. None of your enemies ever have to worry about their flashlights dying. Yeah. But you do yeah. as the player. And I just thought that was so good. Yeah. So good. <laughs> well, after traversing up seven flights of stairs, I think Riley said, yeah, it's just a couple of flights. And then they hit like room 703 and they flash to it. They discover a dead guy in the hallway. Okay, last episode, there was nothing really in the episode that would have killed me. I think maybe I would have shot myself with a gun because I would have freaked out at some point, maybe. Or even at the, uh, I would have shot myself after seeing the monkeys because I would have been startled. (laughs) So I think that would have been when I died. In this episode, I was halfway expecting that dead guy to just kind of jump out and, and scare me. This would not have been where I would have died but it would have been where I would have peed my pants because of (laughs) what eventually happened here. So they find him and they notice that he's fresh. Then they start examining him and they see that he's got fun drink, a little alcohol. It's a great little observation here, Aaron, because they kind of observe that his body is fresh and that the bottle next to him, I think it was, I don't know if it was like brand new or whatever, but they kind of asserted that he knew he was infected. And so he basically just killed himself by drinking and taking pills that he sort of voluntarily ended his life. I thought that was a kind of neat little investigative moment for both of them that they were like, yeah, he didn't die by infection. He died by choice at this point. Yeah, You're giving him some credit, I guess. I, I mean, there's a pile of pills next to his body yeah but i'm saying yeah but i'm saying they see the infection on him and obviously he wasn't shot or anything but the point i was going to make here is that the extra who plays this part is phenomenal Uh i mean he's he's right up there with the dude from episode two (laughs) that's that right crazy stuff coming out of his mouth and then he falls through the floor (laughs) it's very scary it is it's a great jump scare (laughs) because it's like he's not gonna gonna come he's gonna leave really quickly (laughs) and then they start laughing like haha moment yeah whatever it's not funny to sneak up on your friend it's didn't find it funny myself i didn't but (laughs) (laughs) they start drinking the drink on the way to the mall where where they're eventually going uh, Riley mentions it's not, that's not the first dead body she's seen. She mentions her parents. Ellie asks to hold her gun. <laughs> this is sort of the origin story of Ellie's obsession with firearms. And Riley, rightly so, like within three seconds says, okay, give me the gun back. <laughs> Ellie then asks Riley why she joined the Fireflies. And she tells her that she basically got recruited by Marlene while on a night of sneaking out. She doesn't mention Marlene by name, but the way she describes her, we're, we're meant to assume it is Marlene. Then Ellie sort of repeats what Captain Kwong said about Fedra, basically saying, in a way, Fedra kind of holds everything together. And I couldn't really tell if that was sarcasm or not. I don't think it was. Like, I think there's a little bit of contention here because Ellie doesn't like the Fireflies. And she especially doesn't like that Riley is one because now what Ellie is participating in is essentially making her an enemy of Riley. And so I think in that moment when she said that, I think she was trying to sort of half convince herself and kind of convince Riley that you don't have all the answers either. Yeah, I agree. And this kind of ties back to something we didn't mention this quote, but when they're in the dorm room and Riley first arrives, Riley's trying to get her to come out with her. And this really cute moment where she's like, first you're going to say no, but then you're going to say yes. And Ellie's like, no. And she's like, okay, now you said no. Now say yes. And it's this fun little banter that establishes their relationship really well. But as part of that, Ellie's like, it's 3 a.m. She's like, we don't have much time. And she says, in a few hours, I have drills where we learn to kill fireflies. 
And I think she's conflicted. I really do. I do because she doesn't know. She knows pieces of the world that she's a part of and the indoctrination that they've been feeding her. I think she's definitely smart enough to not necessarily be buying it wholesale, but she doesn't know if it's better on the other side. All she has to go by is this secondhand information that Riley is giving her. So yeah, yeah I think she is very conflicted throughout the whole run of this event. Yeah. Yeah. I think so too. So they finally arrive at their destination. It's the mall. Um, Ellie's like, everything's powered here. This is weird. And she's hesitant, obviously. I mean, she's trying to figure out what's going on. Ellie thinks she's that it's fully infected, but Riley disagrees. And we do it first. <laughs> I guess we're the naive audience that goes along with this. So they end up in the electrical room. And I think this was part of the game as well, because I remember this sequence happening of like, am I going to get attacked by infected by going through the door and then turning right and then going down a dark hallway? Uh, that's exactly what happens in in this sequence. And it didn't dawn on me until later when when Riley reveals that she's been here before for different reasons that when she's very much confident that nothing's going to happen to Ellie, that's why it's because she's incredibly familiar with this, uh, this particular place. But nonetheless, Ellie goes through the power comes on. And I remember this from the trailer. I wish I hadn't seen it in the trailer because the first time I saw this little clip of the over the shoulder shot of Ellie looking out at this abandoned mall my face was exactly like Ellie's, this like wonder, this like, oh my gosh. And I was thinking about it, not only from a, oh, this is just like the game, but also from a set piece point of view. And Adam and I have talked about this about Stranger Things specifically, the, the way that the sets are built, how detailed they are, it's got to be so difficult to actually, I mean, you can film in a mall, that's, that's fine. I mean, and there are abandoned malls out there, but to film in a mall that looks like it's been run over to be in a mall that has some things working and some not to have flickering lights at certain parts and lights not working and lights working. It's very much from an art direction point of view, got to be laying this out in such a detailed way. And I don't know if the set directors get that much credit, but I really, really want to call attention to this set in particular because it's beautifully constructed. If it is a, a set, I think it is, but even if it isn't, to, to reconstruct an abandoned mall in a way that has function in some areas and not in others. It's just awesome. So I remember learning about this in some of the behind the scenes stuff that I was watching the first time around. Um, so I actually pulled this in case this came up. I can tell you this, it was a mall and it's hilarious. And I'm actually going to read it from the, I believe the set director. What, I don't know what his title was. Now I'm not seeing what his title was and I'm feeling bad because I should say it. The production designer, <laughs> uh, John Pano, and he was talking about how he was you know, really hoping to find this old school classic American style mall. Guess where they found it, Patrick? Canada. Not in America. It was in Calgary, Canada. <laughs> Canada. Everything great's in Canada when it comes to sets. And, and he, he said this. He said, I'm a child of the 70s and the mall was a temple the size of 10 football fields. I'd spent a lot of time there and specifically in the video arcade, which you and I both did as well growing up in the 80s. So we were hoping to find something like that. We found an abandoned mall that was completely stripped and didn't have a second floor. So we built the rooftops and the stores, but what they look like from the balcony is all CGI because our mall didn't have a second floor. Wow, that's awesome. And what it's a, a mix. Well, and, and, it's a, and it's an effective mix. I didn't think of any CG at this point. And I think this really speaks to the fact that when you balance practical effects and CG, when CG becomes an accent piece for practical, that's when I think it works really, really well. And I want to go back to the whole sequence in the episode with Kathleen where the bloater comes out and the, the infected kind of pre, pre, preclude him, prelude, prelude him, <laughs> pre, I don't know what it was. They come out before. And all of those infected are real people. They're not digitally done. And I remember the post-episode chat with uh, Craig Mays, and he said we wanted to get real people to do that because it needed to feel organic. It didn't need to feel like thousands upon thousands of, of Weta created <laughs> infected. We wanted it to feel very grounded in a way that felt both overwhelming and possible to take out to an extent. And I think that the same thing is here. That mall feels very, very solid. It feels well-constructed. It feels real. 
it's great to see the uh, the different stores that are there. There's a CVS, a Victoria's Secret, of course, several other ones that I recognize, not just from a specific era. That's the thing, is Stranger Things 3 or 2, I can't remember which one took place in a mall, but it's all 80s, and it's a fantastic set, but it's specifically 80s, and it's very much catering to that. I like the fact that just like Ellie, we're not confined to a decade. We're not trying to accent a decade of a person. And this mall feels like, as you mentioned, someone who is around the 70s and like us who were around the 80s. And I imagine before it started dying out, kids in the 90s who were going to these places and the food courts and all that stuff. So it very much feels generic in a, in a really, really great way. Yeah, I agree. And it's just a nice way to get into it. I'll say this. They did specifically go for the vibe of what they wanted to be a date night. And I think that there's a lot of very casual nods to potentially these characters having feelings for each other. Obviously, there's going to be a moment later in the episode, but I think that there's questioning and uncertainty around a lot of this. And I thought that the banter in front of the Victoria's Secret store was hilarious. It made me giggle. And there are two scenes as well that kind of led up to eventually some more reveals for Ellie and Riley that I really liked the, the subtlety and the way that they're done. One of them is when they first meet and Ellie is changing and she's like, turn around. And Riley's like, what in the world? Like, why do you care if I turn around? Um, but Ellie's still very, she still has a, a modesty, modesty to her yeah. um, at her age. And then there's this moment when they're moving on into the mall now after this Victoria's Secret store, when they've walked in and Ellie walks up to the window, which she can see her reflection in and ever so slightly and very briefly and very quick, she just moves a little pieces of her hair out of her face. And Ellie has never shown us that she gives a rat's butt about her appearance. This is like maybe the only time in the entire show that I can remember her actually doing something that is wanting to make herself look better. And I just found that kind of moving that there was this moment that she was feeling while she's looking in this Victoria's Secret window, which has its own double meaning because of its own relationship with what it makes women feel about themselves and their bodies. But she wanted to make herself look pretty. Yeah. Um, and then we move on. Yeah. Before that, I like the setup of the four, excuse me, five wonders of the mall. I thought that was a really oh, great it, setup. So good. I, I don't think this was specific to the game. I don't remember it being the game. I think this was specific to the to the show. Is that correct or am I wrong? I can't remember it being called that specifically in the, the game either. I yeah. think maybe they maybe have made it up. Yeah. So the escalator became the fifth one and Ellie is, you know, responding to it like a, you know, like a kid would the first time seeing like, <laughs> I kept thinking the, the Mitch Hedberg. I still joke, respond like, to it like that. And I'm 44. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I've been on a bunch of them. I miss, I miss a good es escalator. It reminded me of the Mitch Hedberg joke. I like an escalator, man, because the escalator can never break. It can only become stairs. There would, there would never be an escalator temporarily out of order sign. Only an escalator temporarily stairs. <laughs> Sorry for the convenience. And then, uh, as you mentioned, they're walking through the mall area. Uh, the abandoned shops are there. They're asking, you know, why some are abandoned, some aren't. And that's what leads up to Victoria's Secret. Like, that's one that was not abandoned or that was not looted because it wasn't necessary to be, you know, looking, looking hot in lingerie. Then we get to the second wonder, and that's the carousel. And this was definitely a game reference. Very, very cool set. The fascination from Ellie as it moves and as, it, as she's walking around it. She hops on that horse and there's this really quiet moment uh, with both Ellie and Riley where she looks at Riley and then the, and the carousel breaks. But that moment, I don't know if it was intentionally done this way, but you mentioned that when Ellie was looking at Riley and she fixes her hair earlier in the episode when she talks about being, you know, when she's being modest, Riley is clearly older than Ellie and, and that's established early on. And I love the way that it's framed I don't know if the horses are going up and down, but when she looks at Riley, she's looking up at her. And it's like this visual innocence experience. Like, it's not a sisterly thing. It's a best friend thing for sure. Uh, and eventually, you know, into a more romantic 
flavor, but I love the way that she looks at her with like this, there's something about you, man, you, you're, you're, you're a mystery to me. And all this stuff that she's been absorbing about where she's been and what she's doing, it's just this, this quiet moment where there are things that she's both fascinated with and kind of scared of about Riley because she thought she knew her. And it's kind of cool, but kind of apprehensive too. And, and I don't know if that was intentional, but it was a really, really great shot before the, the carousel actually breaks. I agree. Also more on the detailed storytelling perfectness of this series. Could you pick up on what song was playing on the carousel? By uh, no, this is interesting. I didn't look, I didn't look it up though. What was it? So it's very, it's slowed down. Uh, and so it's not in the same exact flavor because it's like carouseled. Yeah. <laughs> It is Just Like Heaven by The Cure. Ah. And you may not, people may not, who don't know this song, immediately think, oh, this is a love story. Because it's like, tell me, tell me, tell me how you do that trick. It's real poppy. This is a straight up love song about someone who is in awe of someone else and having this moment and kind of realizing that they have feelings for someone. And, and it, is, it is like, I read through the whole song. I was like, whoa. And it is just so impressive to me that they, they took that much care in the way that they crafted all the elements to make things work. Um, so that was cool. And then also, fun fact on this scene, they, they also, I believe this is where they are taking those swigs of whiskey, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah. Specifically, Hamblin whiskey is what it's called in this show. Sadly, does not exist, just for those of you that are curious. They have not, okay. it's not a real thing. Uh, it's some fake whiskey. But uh, this is one of those things that I had mentioned earlier where... Ellie, two episodes ago, maybe, we talked about it where they're at a campfire and she takes a swig of Joel's and she's like, eh, yep, still sucks or still gross. This is it. This is the first time she tastes it and she doesn't like it then. But like a lot of people, she kind of takes a swig and she just sucks it down and buries that kind of reaction because she wants to look like she's on Riley's level, like yeah. you were saying. She's looking up to her. I love what you said there about the experience uh, versus the inexperience of their relationship. And it really, it being something of like an admiration and like, I kind of want to be like you yeah, uh, when I grow up, mm -hmm. even though they would never say it that way. Right. And it ties into what Ellie says to her just before this moment ends where she asks Riley to come back. But that's when Riley reveals to her that she can't come back, that she said, I turned 17 and that's when I get my first duty. You know what that is? It's duty. <laughs> my first duty is duty. Yeah, sewage duty. At that moment, Riley says, the longer I was away, the harder it was for me to come back. And what I think she's saying here is that I found purpose with the fireflies. It wasn't like I hated Fedra. This is where I think what we talked about earlier makes more sense in that the fireflies gave her purpose. It wasn't that she was against Fedra. Like I think if Fedra, honestly, I think if if Kuang had given her detail, well, I say, yeah, it would have given her detail that was like really appealing. I think she would have stayed. I think it was because she didn't feel like all the work that she put in to get to the place where ultimately Ellie was promised to, to go. Now she's got something better. She's got something where the fireflies see in me what Fedra said they saw in me, and they're actually giving me an opportunity. And of course that gets reinforced a little later in a reveal that 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 Ellie finds. But I think that that really speaks to the fact of it's not about the thing, it's about the thing that the thing gives you. And in this case, the fireflies were giving her meaning and purpose or at least reinforcing what she felt like was important to her. So then we move on to the third wonder, and that is the photo booth. Uh, another fun moment by uh, they make faces and they get their picture taken. All the photos are, are faded, yet another great little production detail there that they're not perfect. And then um, after that, Riley takes her to the fourth wonder. And this is probably one of my favorite parts of the episode, and that's the arcade. It's magical. I mean, you and I know when you go to Tilt or Aladdin's Castle or whatever the arcade is, we've got a, a retro arcade uh, down the road from our house that it has those same sounds of the pinball machines making noise and like, and, and music from DDR. And it's just this kind of cornucopia of sounds that reminds you, wow, this is loud goodness right now. It's so neat to see how it's all set up because it culminates to all these games, uh, 80s, 90s, whatever. And then there's the like, oh, moment with uh, Mortal Kombat 2. 
Now, I want to point out, listeners, that there is a deviation from the game. They go to an arcade, but one of the things in the game that you get to experience is not getting to play MK2 specifically. None of the games work because there's no power, I think, or they're all broken. But Riley actually has Ellie hold on to the controllers of this fighting game, this generic fighting game, and she imagines herself playing it. And, of course, you are the player, and you're basically playing a, a Street Fighter-type game. I wanted to ask you, Aaron, do you like this change? Do you feel like that was equally as effective? I know we got the the hints early on in the series, but from this moment when she gets to pay off, did you like the way that this sort of culminated to this moment? I think, yes. It is the way it has to be for the TV show. If you're asking me which one I prefer, I absolutely prefer the video game experience more. I think it is more impactful because I'm part of it. And I and I was not expecting it. It's unique. It is out of nowhere when they go there and she ends up having to play this entire video game in her head as Riley is describing it. It's just a really special experience of someone who doesn't have the means to make this dream come true because Riley can't power up a cabinet that doesn't work, but she's going out of her way to try and give Ellie this experience in some unique creative way. And I just find that really, really powerful and awesome in the actual video game. But again, I don't think like so many things in this show adaptation, you just can't do that and it have the same effect. And so this works great. And for me, Patrick, as a fan of the property, Overall, as a fan of this IP, super fan of this IP, like I love that I get various versions of it. Like in this version, I get to see Ellie play MK2 instead of some generic game that she's playing in her head. I get to do both. And so I I love it for that. Yeah. Um, I do think I I have a little bit of a problem with Riley executing a fatality (laughs) as if she, the only way I was able to accept it, I, I got mad at first. I was like, this is just not, this is not accurate. There's no way. Then I was like, okay, well, Riley's been stationed here, and she told us that. So Riley could have very well put in some serious work in MK2, in which case, maybe, maybe she would be able to pull this off. Yeah. But it was, it was a little bit of a Well, and let me just say- Those are hard. They, they are, they are, but I will tell you this, <laughs> MK2 is at the Retrocade down the road, and I clearly remember the last time I went- I did not play it, but I do remember all the fatality moves being printed on the cabinet. So she could have okay. picked a character. I don't think she changed characters. Maybe she did. I don't know. Baraka and Melina, I think, were the two characters that that's correct that she played. I think so. And uh, so she clearly could have picked those two and just sort of focused on those for the amount of time that she's probably been stationed there. <laughs> I love the the tutorial that she gives her. Like, what do I do? Mash some buttons. That's exactly what you do in Street Fighter games if you're not proficient in it you're just like hitting buttons and hoping that you hit a fatality or something and i like that we get a fatality that's awesome because i mean that was the thing mortal Kombat was was the game that that sort of just changed the world when it came to street fighter type things that in street fighter 2 but it got me asking the question if there was one game left on the planet that you could play and it can't be a it can't be a console game so i know you've got a ton of console games what would be a cabinet game that you would be like, you know what? If I had to live the rest of my life playing this, I would do it. And it can't be play choice 10 because that's cheating. This is not the kind of question you tell somebody or you ask somebody without giving them a heads up. I know. Uh, this is why that, I asked that, that wasn't, a, that's not in the notes. I'm like looking over here. It like, like notes. I, right, I'm pointing to it right here. You know, it, if you could play only one it? game for the rest of your life, what would it be? Oh, I just proved that I didn't read the notes. Thoroughly. Uh, okay. So you just cheated nope. on the test. You didn't study. For yeah. The test. <laughs> So uh, I don't remember which one, but one of the Turtles games uh, that I absolutely adored would be the one that I'd want to play. I was not a huge arcade game fan. Just not. I love being in the arcade. I love the vibe. Play myself some air hockey, do some pop a shot on the side. I loved the Turtles so much. For me, the arcade was frustrating because I don't like time limits. Uh, and I don't, I don't want to just have to keep, I'm not good at games per yeah. se. So I don't want to have to keep dumping in tons and tons of quarters because yeah. I'm not prof, not like skilled. Well, it'd be free play. Uh, so yeah, anyway, I, I think one of the Turtles games yeah. w- would have been my go-to. Okay. Yeah, that's, that's good. I would pick a pinball game. I picked the original Jurassic Park pinball game. Good choice. That to me is, yeah, I, like that. I always gravitate towards pinball. I think it's, 
I don't like the more complicated ones that like have billion point scores and where you can get like millions of points off of like hitting the bumpers three times because that just feels a little bit like a cheat because the the st- the point values are so high. I like the more simplistic ones, but Jurassic Park had such a great uh, kind of premise to it. There's a new one, a new Jurassic Park game that is a little bit more advanced that's over there, but the original was a lot of fun. I think it had the had the uh, the T Rex just kind of honing around, and then you had the ah ah ah, you know, the Nedry voice in the back. So because I love the movie, and I think that's partly why I would stick with that game. So yeah, Jurassic Park pinball for me. Well, Riley wants to move on to the next thing, but Ellie hesitates. She says she's got to get back, and Riley's like, listen, I got to show you something. So she takes her to the food court where she has a gift, and it's the pun book. I thought this was kind of cool, Aaron. I don't know if you picked it up, but the way she asks what it is, because I hadn't played The Last of Us Part Two, I didn't pick this up the first time. But in The Last of Us Part Two, there's a flashback sequence with... Ellie and Joel, where Ellie is <laughs> Ellie's asking about a birthday present that Joel's going to give her. And he's like, is it this? Is it this? Is it this? And I don't know. I'd have to go back and play that sequence and then listen to this dialogue. But I think it's almost the same things that she's asking Riley. Like, is it a dinosaur? Is it this? Is it that? And I thought it was a really cool little throwback to the, uh, to the second video game. So yeah, we, I don't remember that, but I yeah. think that that's great. Well, it's when, yeah, it's when in the game, Joel throws her in the water. <laughs> she has to swim. <laughs> So I do remember that. Then she gives her this, the pun book that we, we see that she has later with Joel and we get another couple of great puns. She says, what did the frustrated cannibal do? He threw up his hands. And then she says, what did the triangle say to the circle? You're so pointless. I used that one on my son tonight. He got that one. I was not going to use the cannibal one because he doesn't know what a cannibal is. And at 10 years old, I really don't want to explain to him that just so he can get the joke. So both of them were really good. <laughs> She also makes a joke about computers and says something about taking screenshots. And then Riley goes, what are screenshots? And Ellie goes, Ellie pauses for a second. She goes, I don't actually know. And I just thought that was really funny. This is a book of puns that is going to, you know, no doubt feature some things that they're not familiar with. Absolutely. And for those of you who didn't play the video game, another video game note, this is how Ellie gets the pun book originally, where she kind of falls in love with these things. And one of the things you have to do to get what's called a platinum trophy or an achievement, uh, a specific one in the game, is you have to get all of the puns. You have to listen to all the puns in the entire game, which means when you're walking around across the game through the world, you have to be patient and let Joel and Ellie talk so she can use the pun book at times. But specifically in the mall, you have to sit there and like go through. And it's amazing how many of these things are actually in the game and the dialogue. And I got a kick out of it. It's one of the <laughs> few trophies to get that is a little bit time consuming but is fun while you're doing it because you're just getting to listen to all these great puns yeah i i counted and i didn't get the trophy i stopped i think i counted at least 12 and i was like yeah, this is never ending i i think that they just got these on repeat and there should be a trophy and there is obviously but i was not patient enough to get that one <laughs> Well, as they're in the food court, this is where Ellie discovers the pipe bombs that Riley made, and she discovers that Riley was posted at the mall by the fireflies. And I put in my notes, not cool, you know, because <laughs> Riley's lying to her. And this explains a lot. It explains, obviously, as we mentioned before, the her experience with MK, the fact that she can get down here, no problem. It's not a Fedra thing. It's about the fireflies. That's when Riley tells Ellie that she's being transferred to a post in Atlanta, Ellie's like, why did you, you know, why did you bring me here? And Riley's like, I wanted to say goodbye. My heart broke a little bit for Ellie because she just stiffens up. Like throughout this episode, she's like softening a little bit. She's like, oh my gosh, you know, this is, this is magical. And then when Riley says that, it's almost like you could see her body just stiffen. She goes, okay, you said goodbye. And then she walks away. It's heartbreaking because it reinforces what, what Ellie said in the last episode, like everybody I've loved either leaves or dies. And this is, this is kind of the, not the start of it, but it's definitely one of the more significant ones that we start seeing is that, you know, Riley's walking away or Riley's leaving. And this is a friendship that she has built, that she's trusted. And now that one's going away. Yep. It's really sad. And I think that's part of what makes this framing device for this episode and the title of the episode so great both the episode and the DLC is that it's all around her determination not to lose another person because you're going through this mind and this backstory of her as she's making that decision to not let Joel be 
the same as her. She got left behind by her mom. She got left behind by Riley. One way or the other, she's getting left behind by Riley, no matter what had happened to Riley. And then now it's like she's just saying, I'm not getting left behind by Joel, too. Just not. I'm going to will this into existence. Yeah. It also is indicative of what we talked about even in the episodes we've seen in the present day of the show with Ellie in this wall that just these things are building inside of her and she's just getting calloused yeah. because things are continually breaking down and never going her way yeah. long term. Yeah. Well, she walks away and then she hears screaming and I'm like, oh no, <laughs> it's the infected guy. Because that's one thing that I didn't point out is that while they're playing MK, the infected guy wakes up <laughs> that they never see, at least until he starts attacking them later. But she runs back and what we have been hearing is like horror sounds from a Halloween store. This is in the game. The the whole bit with the with the masks and everything. I was wondering the first time I saw this, are we going to get the Halloween store? I was upset. This is, this is one of the things that I was actually sad about. So what we get is what f- is framed more like a department store than the Halloween store. We do get to see them each in a mask dancing on the you know, stands or whatever on the, the display cases. And I liked that. But man, the Halloween store is like probably my favorite part of the mall because they walk around it and you take your time and you get to put on all these different mask heads. And she goes over and she like, you can ask that magic eight ball. Like, again, it's kind of like the pun book. You can ask it like 10 different questions if you just shake that thing. And it is so much great dynamic dialogue between them. And I really enjoyed exploring it. We didn't get to do that here. And then the other thing that's missing, which is what is about to happen now, where we're at in the story that you're describing, instead happens when there's a water gun fight. And the water guns are a big part of this because Ellie, when they leave, Riley pulls out these water guns and she's like, look what I got. And we learned that Ellie loves these water guns and that they had been confiscated in the video game. They'd been confiscated by Kwong or Fedra or whoever. And Riley had stolen them and gotten them back. It's another one of those moments where Ellie is just like, you did this thing for me. Like, this is incredible. It's like a gift. Somebody giving you a gift. And then you literally participate in these two girls having a water gun fight. And it is one of the most awesome, most fun things you could ever do because you're playing a video game of nothing but death and murder with real guns and bows and arrows and Molotov cocktails and pipe bombs. And now you are literally shooting each other with super soakers, just like you and I grew up doing all the time. I mean, it was, it was so good. And that's, so it's the one thing I just have to say, it's the one thing I really missed. Yeah. I, this episode. I wanted to point that out too. I definitely missed that, but I think it goes back to this idea of combat where that would have taken a while at the same time though, Aaron, it wouldn't have been a, a stretch for them to break out water guns and then just to shoot for a little bit, just some cutscenes of them, you know, firing back and forth, boom, boom, boom. And then laughing and then having that quiet moment that we end up getting, which is them on the, on the floor talking and talking about family. And that's when I think it's, it's Riley that says she sees the fireflies as being the next family. You know, she doesn't have her parents anymore she thinks of them as family because they chose her. And I love Ellie's response. She goes, I chose you first. Ellie kind of comes to term with Riley's leaving. Like she said, she, she doesn't say it's cool necessarily, but she's like, okay, if that's what you want, then okay. So we alluded to this in our episode on long, long time, this idea of a same sex relationship that is in the game. But what I think, we agreed long, long time was trying to do, but failed at for us is successful here because of how much it makes sense. So as you mentioned, I love the, I love the idea of this whole thing set up like a date night where it culminates to them dancing on this counters. Ellie takes off the, the mask and she kisses Riley and she's like, I'm sorry. And Riley's like, what for? And, and they're smiling. And that's when Ellie says, don't go stay. And it's not a sexual thing. It's not anything based off of like anything like that. It's really about like, this is what is expected from two people who care deeply about each other. Don't go. And I love that Riley says, okay. I love that she says, you know what? You are my family. It's not just that I'm attracted to you, but that we have shared a lot together. And I want to share more of that with you. It is. And I don't believe it. (laughs) I'm sorry to be a Debbie Downer. Okay. I do not believe for one second that 
that was all it took. And Riley was like, yeah, I'm just going to not go now. I, I think it was, I mean, it doesn't matter probably in the big scheme of things, but I feel like it was one of those things that we probably all experienced as kids. You get swept up in the emotion of it. Like someone is nonstop pounding you and begging you not to go. You've already run through this all in your head. Riley's gone and done firefly training. She's been in patrols. She's ready to go, Patrick. Like She's made her decision. And she's already, I feel like, gone through the process of letting go of Ellie. Now, in the moment, when you're face-to-face with someone and you have to hurt them, it becomes harder. And so people skirt the truth. And they give in to their emotions. So they give in to their physical desires. And then what do they do? So often, right after that, as soon as they're back, not face-to-face in that, that very heightened, dramatic moment again, they go through with the thing they'd already made the decision to do in the first place. I, I think Riley was leaving either way. I don't know if I think it's better or not for Ellie that she gets to go out like this. It sucks either way. It's heartbreaking either way. But I guess in one sense, for Ellie as a character, it is probably affirming of something for her and her feelings that she was experiencing. And so maybe that's a good thing for her. Uh, but I just I find it a very interesting and kind of complicated moment between the two of them. So are you saying that Riley just was feeding her a little bit of a line in that moment? Not intentionally. Okay. Absolutely not. I don't think Riley's trying to hurt her. But if you think about it in your own life, this happens all the time. You're making a decision that your wife is not going to agree with and you're fighting or you know she's upset and hurt or frustrated. If she is expressing that over and over and over, you care about her, but you know what's already made, you've already made a decision. You know what has to happen. But there may be a moment where weakness steps in and this happens, it's very human. And that's what I like about this story. This is not me criticizing necessarily. It's just me saying, this is an example of like human stories where this is what we do. We kind of succumb to that emotional moment that is, again, it's so heightened. The drama, everything is like cooked up to 11 or 12. But when you bring that and you strip it all away and you go down to the Riley's already done her pros and cons list, right? She's already made the decision. The decision is still really to go. It's not a rom-com. Life is not like a rom-com where you just flip a switch and you're like, oh, Ellie, I actually love you and I'm going to stay and go back to doing the sewer job that I was told to do. Like, that's just not realistic. Yeah, I can can see that. I think the... I would agree in that I think if this played out without what happens next, there's a good chance that Riley sneaks out in the middle of the night two weeks later and doesn't come back because she comes to conscience. So I definitely believe that. I also am of the pers- of the persuasion that in that moment, she would have committed to it, but she would have been overcome by the bigger picture that you mentioned of the processing of all that stuff. It's not just that she put so much effort into training and things like that, but that you're right her validation from the fireflies and the length of that, the strength of the long-term benefit potentially would probably cast her out, which I think would be pretty interesting for Ellie because it's as if she's like, Oh yeah, she left eventually. And then that would really break some trust where it would give her agency now with Joel and the relationship that they're building of having just that more hesitancy of caring about someone. This person said they were going to stay with me. We shared a moment and they said, yes, I'll stay. And then they still left anyway. What did I do wrong? And I think that that would have been really interesting to play out. <laughs> Unfortunately, that's not what happened because as they're smiling and having fun, boom, in comes another great background artist as the infected and starts attacking them in a way that forces Ellie to get her knife out and eventually stab the thing right in the, uh, in the head. I paid very close attention to the way he dies. So he falls into the ground and then he sort of convulses a couple of times. I was like, that dude, he wants more work that, I mean, it's like, he's not distracting to me, but he does just enough to get me to go. Oh, oh no. Okay. He's dead. That's good. (laughs) I thought he was fantastic. Committed. Yeah. He's a committed infected and good for him. I love that. And then um, Ellie realizes that she's been bitten. So this is the origin of her bite. And Riley shows that she's been bitten too. And then the, the episode kind of goes back and forth between the present and the past. Between Ellie going through, she's, she's gone through the door where we 
catch her at the beginning and she's hunting for stuff to help Joel. So she's like angrily opening drawers and trying to find stuff. And it's the same anger that's parallel with her just wailing on department store glass shelves and things like this. And I love the contrast between her and Riley where she's doing all this stuff in anger and Riley's like, I think there's some more stuff that you can break over there. It represents this level of maturity, this level of inexperience and experience where you have someone completely driven by emotion at this point and the other person who is emotional but is processing it in a way that I think an experienced person of life would. And it, it really visually and from just this whole moment of of contrast really shows the nature of their personalities in this in this moment. And it also shows that things could have been a lot different and we could never have had this whole story <laughs> or game because Riley gives her two options and she says option one is basically it's suicide is what she gets at. And option two is they just keep going. And I think she says something about being poetic. It's really sweet. It's very rom com You know, we just, we live until we can't anymore until it overtakes us and we just accept it. And Ellie like doesn't want to, deal with that and she's like well what's number three what's option three and that's kind of how we end up ending it is riley's like i'm sorry there is no option three is essentially what she is saying this could have easily ended in a double suicide i mean i'll be honest with you if this was me and you maybe i don't know i whoever i probably would have been a proponent of that versus waiting to turn i probably would have preferred and ellie had no way of knowing she was immune so Ellie, in this moment, at this point in time, she believes that she is going to die along with Riley. And this is one of the most fascinating things I find about this whole moment is for me, like being hit with this and how it happened and the realization that we don't get to see this take place. And I think that's brilliant storytelling. But what we know now is that Ellie went from being bitten with her romantic partner, best friend Riley and thinking they were going to die together to Riley dying and Ellie miraculously not dying and having to carry that. It is way more than just being left behind by somebody dying on you or getting killed because she has to deal with that heaviness of being the chosen one that didn't somehow didn't die herself. Like that's like a whole other level of pain and grief and stuff to carry with you up until the point where we meet her uh, with Joel. Yeah. It's as if she's saying, I don't deserve this. I don't deserve the, the past. This is not me. This is a girl who has not been able to accept grace in, in her life. And she's, and as a result, she's choosing not to give it to anybody. Everybody's an enemy until they're not. This whole sequence, this whole episode just continues to reinforce why she is the way that she is. It just, it makes a lot of sense. But I think what what makes this so beautiful is that the episode ends with her and Joel. She comes downstairs. She's found something. I don't, it's, it's medicine or some kind. And she holds his hand. Like she interlocks her fingers with his. She doesn't say anything. She just looks at him. But it's as if she's saying, we keep going. Like I am now your equal, not in terms of strength or experience, but I am choosing to save you just like you're choosing to save me. And I think maybe for, uh, you know, for Joel, he's maybe thinking you're not cargo anymore, <laughs> that you're actually a person. So it, it, it's a, just a, it's a beautiful way to finish this out because the moment that she hesitates at the door culminates to this moment where she comes back downstairs. And I think it's just, it gives us the affirmation that she has chosen to, in spite of those who have left her for via death or via just leaving, she is choosing to keep Joel. Like she's choosing not to be the one who leaves. He's not going to be left behind. She is with him and she has that agency to be able to do that. So I think that's a huge, huge change in her at that moment. Wow. That's beautiful, man. I, you know, I had not think I've ever thought about it that way. And you're absolutely right. You're absolutely right. She is. It's, it's both. That is a huge part of it is her, deciding she's not going to be the one to leave somebody else behind. Right. In fact, 
she goes so far as to have to stitch him up herself, mm-hmm. which let me tell you, I'm sorry, Patrick, but you're going to die. No. Because yeah. Well, I, I figured I'm not doing that. You know, if <laughs> it's not going to happen. It's just not, it's not going to happen. I, I don't know what to say. I don't know what else to say. Well, I was th- I'll fight through the infected in Fedra to get you some, some first aid supplies, <laughs> some tape and some, some spray. And I'm trying to think of what else, some scissors. Yeah. Uh, but when it, I'm not, I'm going to have to find somebody else or you're, your toast just don't bring david <laughs> into my life please don't do that <laughs> it's, it's, it could be i will say this aaron if we ended up like riley and uh and ellie like two best friends in the mall infected my last memories is going to be us playing mk2 while we're turning i was going to say yeah. we could go in the arcade yeah. you're right just, maybe we just do that let's just turn you turn. Know, turn to mk2 you know fatality whoever gets the fatality first you're the winner right <laughs> you could convince me of that i think <laughs> pretty easily that's that's good it's a great way to live your last hours right there all right well that's going to do it for this edition of an original series next week is the penultimate episode of this season entitled when we are in need i was highly anticipating this episode because i have a love-hate relationship with this point in the game i'll share a little bit more about that (laughs) next time good uh (laughs) when would you have died in the mall on this uh so there's the there's the moment um i think when, when the infected came in and tackled me, like I would not, I think I would have missed with the knife and I would, I would like Riley knows how to use that gun. I probably would have tried to just turn over, like jump off the thing. And the, the infected would have like kind of done a little like spin maneuver football style and then just tackled me. And I would have, you know, I would have died in that moment. So had no, no defense for that. You wouldn't have fallen off the carousel and broke your neck or something. No, I'm not going to die in a stupid way. You know, <laughs> I want to die with dignity. It's got to be with the only infected in there. One thing I did, okay. one thing I was curious about was, did they step on fungus in the mall in in the arcade to wake it up, or did it just hear the hear the noises? I, I just I, don't. I certainly didn't notice any fungus. I assumed the mall. I mean, Ellie even makes that comment. She's like, "Yo, <laughs> this is bright and loud. People are gonna see this." She's probably talking about like Fedra. Yeah, but I mean, logic tells you that. You're definitely making a lot of noise compared to what was there in the first place. Noise and lights. Yeah. And I would have expected that. That's why it wakes up a whole lot of infected in the video. Yeah. It's like they're swarmed. <laughs> it's not just one dude. That's a that's a true statement right there. All right. Well, thank you all for joining this conversation. I'm Patch. He's Aaron. And we are out of here. <laughs>